Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Tuesday, November 22nd, 22nd, 2011, and our special guest tonight is Scott Nine from the Institute for Democratic Education in America. Scott, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. There are birds in the background. This isn't a soundtrack. Are these actual live birds? <laughs> They're actually coquie frogs. I'm in Puerto Rico. And no way. The, and the, and they are there are these small frogs in Puerto Rico called coquis, and um, there there's no way to get rid of them. They're they're, <laughs> they're surrounding everywhere. So I, I hope, I hope everyone know, enjoys them. <laughs> <laughs> the future of education is sponsored by the Web 2.0 Labs project. And that's my project to help give educators a voice in the education discussions. Uh, great parallels with tonight's conversation. Also by Blackboard Collaborate who provide this environment and uh, part-time employment for me. So thank you to Blackboard. Coming up on the future of education, Alan Blankstein was to be next week, but I'm actually going to be traveling uh, to speak at a conference and so we're rescheduling that. Uh, Tasha Bergson-Michelson from uh, Google is going to talk about digital search literacy uh, on December 1st. Malia Dicker, who is actually a part of IDEA or IDEA, uh, is going to come on the show on December 6th. Uh, Lisa Nielsen on Hacking Education. David Maxfield on December 13th on the fascinating books, uh, Influencer, Crucial Conversations, uh, Change Anything. Uh, these are well-known books outside of the education field. It'd be interesting to talk about them in the context of education. Anyway, lots more fun coming up. New shows on the list. Cheryl Nussbaum-Beach on her book uh, coming out, The Connected Educator. Uh, Henry Eyring on The Innovative University, uh, which he's co-author with Clayton Christensen of Disrupting Class. Uh, Cable Green's going to talk about the obviousness of open policy. Uh, lots and lots of fun. If you've missed the show, they are all recorded and they're up in uh, full Illuminate Blackboard Collaborate editions and MP3 files. Uh, we just got through with the Global Education Conference and the Lib Future of Libraries conferences. Uh, over 450 total recorded sessions from both of those stunning in scope and ideas. Uh, lovely to bridge the two worlds of ed tech and libraries and uh, there's more of that to come. Mike Mariner uh, was on the show. Uh, just a delightful guest. Mark Sermon from uh, Mozilla Foundation. David Lurcher on uh, communities. Uh, learning Commons. Uh, Gina Bianchini on Mighty Bell. Anyway, lots and lots of fun. Hopefully there's something up there that's of interest to you. So Scott, I, I, I'm just going to start with the name of the organization. It's just a brilliant kind of play on everything and it kind of recursively brings everything around. Uh, did somebody get to take the day off after they came up with that name? <laughs> it wasn't me, so they should have probably. Uh, the, the, um, a couple of folks uh, that, that really got idea off to the ground, uh, Dana Bennis, uh, who's our director of research and programs, and Malia Dicker, who you're having, having on, um, and several folks. And it's a uh, the the thing that stuck was that it's a good idea, um, <laughs> and then we we learned later some really just it constantly keeps coming up with new points of connection. We we obviously um, knew about the idea law um, and the idea about inclusiveness and least restrictive environment and thinking that two ideas are better than one, which we joke around about, and um, we um, we learned later that idea in Latin means the physical manifestation of a phenomenon. Um, and so we like that very much. Um, and of course, then kind of talking about 
how do we have a place that studies, learns, and shares about what is democratic education in America as a constantly evolving term? And um, yeah, we're, we've come to be quite fond of it. So I, I'd like to start, if we could, with this whole concept of democratic education. And there's a quote on the website, uh, the United States of America is founded on democracy and the democratic values of meaningful participation. Uh, every once in a while I hear somebody say, uh, schools or the workplace are the most undemocratic places in our democratic society. Um, is there truth to that? There's there's definite truth. Um, I think that the the core notion of kind of just very basic logic framework of input output. If you think about what the kind of common core experience of most young people is in most schools over the course of 13 years, schools were designed to prepare, pe prepare people to work in factories. So the thing that, I mean, when I was a middle school teacher, it was sit still, follow directions, raise your hand, ask for permission to get out of the bathroom. Um, and the ways of thinking about what makes for a healthy, vibrant democracy, what is engagement, what is learning, are things that um, don't line up very well with the majority of what teaching practice has been. Obviously, there are lots of evolutions and changes in that, and certainly there are amazing classroom teachers that rise above the kind of overall basic frame. Um, but I think schools can be incredibly undemocratic. To be clear, it's, it's also important to say that Democracy is a complicated concept, and um, idea is not about a kind of simple notion of democracy equaling only everyone will sit around and vote about how to spend their time, um, but is really this core set of ideas that integrates thinking about social justice, access to power, knowledge and skills, local economic development, really thinking about how do young people and communities own education, who holds the ownership of what's happening in those spaces, um, and how, how, do you, how does education reflect what we actually want in our communities, what's going to help our communities be healthy and viable um, going forward. So when I talk about this, I put up a chart on the screen usually, and it, on one side I've got structure, and on the other side I've got freedom. And, and for me, that democracy is very much this balance between structure and freedom. Um, and, and schools typically really weigh toward the structure end. So um, uh, where do you give freedom and where do you give structure? And is that a, is that a good way to think about democratic education? You know, it's, a, it's definitely a, a place where I started from in terms of my own journey with that, although I'm not actually sure that it's the most useful frame. Um, structure, I'm, I'm fond of, uh, there's a, um, the Daily Show, John Stewart um, makes this comment about what allows the Daily Show to be so funny and on point is the fact that they create a tremendous amount of structure and rhythm to their process um, and that most people would look to say like, wow, that's not very fun, but it actually creates this tremendous amount of freedom. Um, or you can, you know, look at the Tao Te Ching and Taoists to talk about, you know, you have to have structure in an empty bowl in order to kind of create space. Um, I'm not sure that actually that structure is anti-freedom and that freedom equates to not having structure. Um, I, uh, in my own journey, have moved through a lot of learning as a parent and educator, and I think that the world is a complicated place that adults have to help young people make sense of. Um, you know, you, when you have businesses that can put young kids in MRI machines to scan their brains to figure out how to best create messages through media and advertising in order to get them to be consumers of projects, 
you can't then say that if you if a kid watches television for a week and then decides that they want to go to that particular business that that's free choice. And so to me education is about negotiating what is real freedom and freedom from things and freedom for things and what are structures that actually create freedom and service well and what are structures that don't. And so I think it's, it's a bit of a mistake to equate them together. It sets up a kind of, you're either kind of for school or anti-school or you're for freedom or anti-freedom and I think that there has to be a more nu nuanced view of those things. So I probably just didn't do a good job describing it because in my mind I was thinking of John C. D. Brown's sort of definition of culture squared you know, the culture that is uh, culture in a petri dish which sort of grows wildly and the other culture is culture which constrains us and it's the combination of the two. Um, but you'll, you'll flesh that out and, and, and give us a better sense as we go on. Um, one of the questions that first came up to me, obviously the word democratic has a lot of uh, heritage in our country. Um, was education in this country ever democratic? Because I think of pre-public schools, the education being sort of aristocratic. Um, are, are we trying to create something that has existed before or, or recreate it or are we creating something new? <laughs> I selected the option D, all of the above. Um, <laughs> all of the above. Uh, I think that it's, it's hard to make a, you, you look at the, the history of education just, just in, the, in the U.S. as a limited kind of construct and just to point out two specific examples, you can look at um, community education efforts to beat Jim Crow laws as part of the 1960 civil rights movement in which you have um, black and white folks coming together to talk about citizenship, literacy, power with a very specific aim towards being able to get access to the vote. And then you can look at the Bureau of Indian Affairs schools um, that were really attempts to strip indigenous people of their language and culture, which at the time was kind of like benevolent good intentions, um, but in retrospect look at as kind of a horrifying facet of U.S. history. Um, schools are shapers of culture and certainly there are moments in time over course of our history in which schools have tipped more towards building a kind of democratic culture or habit of mind. Um, the, the Parker Palmer just came out with a recent book talking about um, what needs to happen in our communities going forward in terms of democracy and, and to me the, the, he uses the language of the habits of the heart, of the habits of democracy. Um, I think that you can look at key moments and say, well, here's where we made real turns away from democracy um, or turns towards it. Um, but at its root, then you're still left saying, well, so what the heck is democracy? And I think that's an ongoing experiment as well. Um, and so, you know, I mean, getting into this conversation of what is democratic community? What is a democratic society? What are the core values? And for us, the, the real work is to say that should be an ongoing alive discussion and our efforts in schools should line up as closely to our current thought as possible and that we are far away from that in most communities around the country. So again, there's this sort of brilliant, par these brilliant parallels that take place which is the experience the students should be having should be uh, in fact very similar to the experience that the uh, educators are having which should in fact be very similar to the experience the community is having. And so I'm very interested in this thought of um, you know, that we think of democracy as a process versus an outcome, that it's so important to participate um, and sort of transferring that to education and then seeing that that participation needs to take place at, at all levels. 
so uh, if we can, I went through the site and I kind of made a list of what I felt were sort of definition points of democratic education. When Jerry Mintz was on the show from um, Arrow, uh, I felt like a lot of the conversation was around governance. But it feels as though much that you're much more expansive than that, and that uh, your your definition of democratic education allows for a, sort of a wide variety of ways in which it can be implemented, in not just governance. And the first that really pops out to me is just the whole idea of engaging students. I mean, how important is that, and uh, and why why do we have trouble with that? <laughs> um, so to to me. It's the engagement of students is the kind of primary principle around which everything else flows. If we think about what we know about learning and about what makes learning relevant um, and, and actually gives you access to do something tangible, the, the lack of engagement with young people is a clear warning sign. I, I often joke around that we shouldn't talk about the dropout rate. We should talk about the failure to engage rate. Um, and those numbers are pretty startling when you look at what's happening, particularly in urban cities, but also in rural communities in terms of student dropout rates. Um, and then you can look at lots of statistics around how many students report being bored in school, how rarely students feel like school is relevant to them. And I think that the, that leads you to this kind of clear place of saying, like, teachers can feel that. No teacher's interested in their kids and their students not being engaged. And yet, it's often felt like the weight of kind of curriculum pressures or getting lesson plans done months and months in advance keep us away from this point of contact, which says, what is happening inside of schools and classrooms? And how do they actually become relevant actors in their community? How do they become the center of community and the place where it is the collision of community, culture, technology, teacher as content deliverer, but teacher as master facilitator, learning to listen and engage with young people who are trying to make meaning of this complicated world that's increasingly more complicated, where you can Google the periodic table of elements, and yet you still have young people who don't know what a basic budget is. How do we navigate all this information and all those kinds of things? So to me, engagement is the beginning place, because it's about relationship, it's about context, it's about paying attention to one another, and then everything else kind of stems from that place. Um, and, and you know, in terms of a, a broader definition, uh, idea is certainly in its ethos about trying to make connections between student engagement, social justice, uh, place in community-based education, um, social emotional learning. There are numbers of different movements in which people are talking about very core ideas but using different language. And our hope with ideas to get democratic education to inhabit a much more complex, nuanced space than simply equating to governance, and that we can begin to build something very significant by connecting all those different frames together. So I'm reminded of so many times as a parent when uh, the easier path was command and control, and you know, getting to engagement or decision making was hard, and sometimes I just didn't want to take the time. Are there sort of human nature issues at work here, and how do you help people get, what leads to the kind of confidence that would allow educators to provide this kind of an engaged environment for students? It's a powerful set of questions. Um, I think that on a couple of things. One, I think that, that learning and, and democratic education has to in itself be a human endeavor. And I, I, w I actually don't want to totally strike away that as a parent myself, that there are moments in which um, 
you know, there is a place for kind of healthy adult authority and there is a place for different types of cultural learnings. One of the things that we talk about a lot in terms of democratic education is that we are not wanting to equate uh, the, con the concept of deep democracy or democratic education with simply a kind of uh, to be grossly stereotypical, 1960s hippie, uh, everyone fly butterfly, be free, will sit on the couch and everyone kind of follow their own dream. Um, that that's an overly simplistic notion and, and uh, there's a great book by Lisa Delpit called Other People's Children which talks about codes of power, about explicit instruction. We work with several communities of color um, and there is across, across cultural context ways in which there are times for adults to be very directive, to keep kids safe, to engage and that actually being engaged in, in relationship doesn't equate necessarily with always being in a facilitative space. The question is around what's the, what, what's the actual relationship happening and what are you kind of mediating through. Um, and so I think broadly talking about, um, you know, how do you, how do you navigate, you know, these, these, different, these different pieces, this is kind of a core beginning place to think about what is engagement, what's it look like. Well, it occurs to me, and we've talked about this on the show several times, that um, that it's that it's asking a lot of educators to create an engaged environment for their students if they're not working in an engaged workplace. Meaning, I'm I'm going to guess that it really helps to have a school that's building a culture of education around engagement. Uh, where the teachers are participating and, and in your experience you're probably seeing examples where that engagement has to exist at the student, educator and administrator level. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we're, we're involved in a project in a, in a city in Puerto Rico um, where we're engaging teachers in circles and for many teachers as they sit and talk with each other about their own experiences in school, it's one of the first times they've sat in a circle where there hasn't been a pre-planned district agenda, where they're actually talking about what their connections with the city are, how they see young people, how they learn. Teachers will remark things like, I've been working with you for 10 years and I never, I never knew anything about you. Um, we don't do a very great job helping support teachers uh, to be in environments where they have the space and time to reflect and to think and to relate to one another. Um, and certainly teachers deserve the, the same types of conditions and engagement. In fact, what we're asking is a really complicated thing of teachers. For my purposes, we're asking teachers to find the courage and the capacity to create learning environments that aren't like ones they were in and that it's going to have to come out of their own interpersonal learning and growth and it's got to come out of school leaders and the community supporting them to take those steps. My personal feeling is that teachers actually know that space. Teachers are these deep, wise, amazing people. You know, maybe 5% of teachers are, are, are outright problematic, but the majority of teachers are these unbelievably wise people, but we don't allow them into that space very often and that actually if you get teachers past the kind of first level checklist set of responses, they know exactly the kinds of things that they want the young people. They got into education because they care about and love them. They didn't get into it for the salary and they would like nothing more than to be released to be able to bring that wisdom into classrooms, into communities and to engage more deeply. And then the question is, who's going to set them free? And my opinion is that it's going to be young people, teachers and communities that are going to do that. It's certainly not all evidence points to the fact that state policies and standardized testing aren't going to release us to that place. So I'm going to skip ahead because I'm really curious about this um, because as, as soon as you sort of mention community, I begin to think of you know, what are ways in which you would help 
help a community to build a culture of education and to go through this process of expressing themselves and feeling a part of the decision making um, and having it be a democratic, a more democratic uh, activity. Um, can you describe for us an example of how a community can, could go through that? Yeah, there's a couple of good examples, and I'll describe one that we're we're um, we're working with, and and um, we're working in Caguas, Puerto Rico, in a pilot project that is adapting the work of um, the work of an Israeli educator named Yaakov Hecht, who has been working with what they call education cities, um, and the construct is is really interesting. Um, what they do is they they begin by talking about getting rid of the construct of mayoral control, but talking about mayoral engagement. And at the same time that they're talking about engaging the kind of top-level macro system of folks and engaging them by sitting them in circles and asking them to talk about the city's strategic plan, the goals for its students, the dreams they had as children that they could use the city's resources for to connect. At the exact same moment in time, they're engaging with teachers and teacher unions. They're getting teachers in schools in circles. They're getting principals in circles. They're getting the community in circles. They're engaging with middle school students and across every school in the city and in at least 15 to 1 student-to-teacher ratios. And they're saying just for the first hour of every day, have an advisory period in which the students get to talk about what's going on in their neighborhood, what's their life like, what are their dreams. What is the city's resources and how could they make better use of them? What are the things that they would most like to be able to, how can they visualize what they want to be in the world and what's the kind of skills they need to get there? And the teachers get to have the same conversations and the community gets to have the same conversations and then structurally you create this kind of corkscrew of affinity circles and then you begin to take those relationships and you let them have enough time to almost in some ways percolate some of the frustration that exists. We're used to being in kind of always hyper-facilitated circles with a kind of clear tangible end and part of it is actually giving the community space to be able to express what is just, I think, in any community where I've engaged at any length, a ripe amount of teacher frustration, parent frustration, community frustration, everyone looking at what's currently going on, not feeling totally satisfied with it, not always being totally formed, informed about all the different constraints because it's so complex, our education system, but knowing deep down that we need to do something different. And then out of that, you're able to begin to build tangible ways to change the way the school is related to the city, the city is related in using the resources of the schools, the ways in which parents and students are engaged, and in the cities where that project has had time to kind of manifest four or five years down the road, they're looking at research numbers of like 40% decrease in youth violence, huge increases in student sense of belongingness to their community, huge increase in teacher retention and sense of professionalism and being reinvited back in as a kind of wisdom leader inside of their communities. and so. This is one kind of large example of engagement at, a, at an entire city level. Um, there are certainly examples at, at other, you know, at other points of contact. If you want me to share more, of course I want you to share more. But uh, let me ask sort of a directed question. So, uh, uh, activities like a future search or open space technologies or a pursuit of inquiry seem to um, build on this this allowance for people to tell their own stories. Are you using a particular framework technology to hold these conversations? Is this something you've created or you're in, um, building on other work? Is there a, um, a model here? 
Um, I, I would, it's, <laughs> like lots of things I say, it's kind of a tweener. I'm where there's deep awareness of kind of systems thinking, Peter Senge, appreciative inquiry. Um, there's also the looking at the civil rights movement and thinking about kind of um, story circle methodologies. There's so much powerful stuff about story and personal narrative, and we definitely, one of our core values is about people and story at the center of our work. Um, there are amazing um, organizations like the Community Learning Exchange and the work of Miguel and Francisco Guajardo and um, where they're using story that we've connected with and engaged with. I'm a big fan of the work of a, a writer named Arnie Mandel um, who runs the Process Work Institute and um, the influence there is really that we don't pick one particular um, structure that that we want to know about and have uh, kind of like best practice information and research, but that if we're going to engage broadly in community, we have to not get kind of quick checklist things. We have to have the tools on our belt, but we have to constantly be looking at the actual context, actual people in the room. Otherwise, the technique begins to operate on the community in the same way that you talk about, um, or Paulo Freire talks about the banking concept of education where the teacher's job is to like cut off the head of the student, lift it up, and dump information in. The same thing that's transpiring in a classroom is transpiring in the community. And so we're for kind of how do you build tools of community actors, organizers, facilitators, and we, we definitely are working with all of those folks around the way that says how do you constantly read the environment and how do you have these different tools and how do you think about story and how do you facilitate that but less from a place of saying like we're following you know this program and more about how do you inhabit that as a set of values and then let those values guide you in a particular context. I was too busy taking notes. <laughs> I, the talk I was like, did the internet go down? <laughs> no, no, that was me. Okay, so you're going to hear some sirens. There must be something going on here. Okay, so, um, so let's kind of get back to the definition of democratic education. Yeah. And um, so sort of the next point that came out for me was the student's ability to explore personal interests. Mm -hmm. um, uh, again, this is sort of a this ends up being a little bit controversial with the friends that I talk to because they feel as though there needs to be some core basis of, of information and they're not really ready to trust students exploring personal interests. How do you respond to that? Um, there's, there's righteous truth to both. Um, I think that you have to look at kids on a developmental continuum, so I think you have to think about um, at different ages different things are true, so we can't broadly generalize, but I think we have to make some generalizations at different developmental markers. Um, but clearly, in the world that we live in, whether we like it or not, to get access to the kind of power and jobs, and particularly thinking about entrepreneurialness that recreates local economic well-being, you ha people have to learn to read, and they have to learn to write, and they have to have teachers who can tell them honestly in relationship that their writing isn't very good um, and that they need to grow in certain kinds of ways. And so I don't want to pretend that that's not true and I don't think it's responsible in the complicated world that we live in for adults to simply say that the way that we give young people power is to pretend that adults don't know anything and they should just kind of stay out of it altogether. I don't, I don't buy, there's a, a whole field of folks in the kind of like free school, democratic school world of which I was once upon a time a part of that they take this idea that any adult engagement is coercion and that if we just left young people to their own devices, they would be just fine. Um, and I just, just don't think that that's accurate. At this, that being said, 
we could tip the scales a tremendous amount towards student interest. Um, this idea of lack of engagement, of relevance, you can learn to read and write by making a tangible change in your community. So we celebrate schools like the iSchool in New York in which young people are engaged in m multiple hours of, of projects that are directly connected to the well-being of their local community, whether that's on environmental policy campaigns or whether that's helping local business owners figure out how far apart their, their their restaurants should be, but they're doing learning um, that is for a real audience that's of tangible benefit to the community that pushes them to those skills. And so to me, we don't always have to pick between them. We have to be mindful about them. I don't think that being five years old and being skill drilled to death is the most valuable way to teach kids to read. Finland's living proof of the value of waiting till kids get a little older to introduce them to reading and writing in terms of conceptually making sense of things. Um, but I think that we have, to, we have to find a nuanced position between those things. Broadly speaking, we don't let students, we, don't, we, don't, we haven't created schools as structures that can let students lead a lot of their learning most of the time in a thoughtful way in which the adults are helping create kind of superstructures and ways to help make and broker their learning, um, which is where we, you know, we certainly think we need to head. So is there a connection here between uh, students being able to watch their teachers pursue their own interests and their um, they're participating in the same way. I mean, again, I'm trying to, to, to look at this parallel because in a lot of ways, there's sort of this expectation that teachers' personal lives are not really a part of the education process, um, that uh, they're so busy they don't really have time to do other things. And, and what kind of value is there in the students seeing the teachers involved in other activities? Yeah, I mean, I, you, you, you've, you know, I think kind of answered the question in a lot of ways. The, uh, Paulo Freire is, is, a, is a favorite kind of author theorist input for me and when he wrote very intentionally teacher learners or teacher students, student teachers, um, I think we can almost miss that too quickly. Um, I know of no really powerful teacher that isn't in themselves an amazing learner both in terms of learning about human beings and engaging in terms of the practice, the artful facilitation of what's happening in a room, but also just in terms of like raw curiosity. Um, if you're a teacher standing in front of a room and you have put yourself in a role in which you have to have all the answers, um, you just can't, at, at some point technology has defeated that view because your students can you know, look online and find five sources that would prove you wrong. Um, and so the, um, the teacher has to be able to be curious. They have to ask questions they don't know the answers to. They have to engage with the pursuit towards finding things that, they, that students can follow. They have to be engaged out in the community. And so I think it asks for, um, as I was saying before, we're, we're asking so much of teachers and we don't thank them enough. We don't appreciate them. They don't feel like they're on the side of this conversation very often. They're constantly being told I describe it as the mountain of not good enough. Um, it's exhausting. My mom taught for 30 years. And um, I think that that's, a, that's an exhausting place to be. And at the same time, we, ha we desperately need teachers to stand up inside of teacher unions and outside of it to say what powerful learning can look like, to find it within themselves, to become learners again, to change the methods of how we're teaching, and to demand that school leadership and school policies change towards directions that support them in the ways that you're describing and that I'm describing. And, and then obviously, because at the end of the day, that's what's best for young people to navigate the next 25, 30 years of what's, what's in front of us. So tell me uh, your definition of a personal learning plan. Hmm. 
Um, I mean, definitionally, I would just say that it's uh, it's 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 someone identifying, um, you know, their <laughs> essentially their star, the the place that they want to reach as best they can at that moment in time, and then it's laying out the kind of step by step places that they have to move through, including some of the rough spots, because in order to kind of master anything, you're going to hit. Seth Godin calls it the dip. You know, you're going to hit a spot where it's not always comfortable, and a plan creates that kind of support. Um, I don't. It's it's interesting to think about because um, a plan I might create for myself can be benefited so much by sharing with a teammate or a colleague or someone who knows me well that might see weaknesses I might not see. And so, what generates as a as a as a trained kind of social worker thinking about kind of the people in their environment, to me a personal plan is something that I own but could be co-created with other people who might give me tremendous kinds of input. Um, and so I think that's that's where I'd start from. So some of the most powerful examples of that personal learning plan for me have existed within the context of the advisory. Is there a connection there? Yeah, I mean, whether it's an explicitly stated, written down plan or contract or learning agreement, or whether it is a kind of, you know, slightly sitting in the ether unconscious thing, the sense of having uh, a witness to your learning process in that role of an advisory kind of person, to me, really, you know, recreates re the conditions of the basic role of teachers and students. I mean, I think there is a place for, for peers, for, for other students and other folks in the process. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I think that having someone helping, and the, the, the definition of an advisor, I'm not going to look it up, someone can, can, can chat in and tell us what it actually is, but it's, to me it's someone who is, you know, getting a chance to, who's, who's seen the territory ahead before or has a good guess at what it is and doing the best they can to help point out possible pitfalls. And we use the language of right amount of challenge, right amount of support. Um, and and uh, so that's, I think, a good, a good spot. So this has come up a lot with personal portfolios. But one of my gripes is this idea that the school creates the structure and environment for the portfolio and the student just uh, is uh, either adds content or the teacher actually adds content to the student portfolio. And my sense is that for the portfolio to actually be valuable to the student, they have to be the creator of the portfolio and teach the process of that creation. Um, and I'm guessing that the same thing is true of personal learning plans. There are probably programs for personal learning plans, but have you seen examples of, of uh, ways in which schools have helped students to create their own personal learning program that or personal learning plan that actually travels with them through the grades that the student kind of curates? Well, that's interesting. I'm kind of trying to track back in my head and think about some different examples. Um, there is a, a powerful site um, by a Canadian educator, um, and I'm trying to trace his name. Um, oh, can't quite come up with it. Um, he came up with rites of passage theories. Um, and I should, I'm embarrassed that I can't remember it because he's a really, really nice man um, who's created a kind of way in which there are kind of sets of prompts and questions, but what you play inside of that structure, um, Maurice Gibbons is his name. The, um, the, there's a kind of, his theory is that there's a kind of superstructure, but there's a tremendous amount of freedom to play inside, and I can try to trace back some links that you could put in with the site. Um, the, um, and then um, there's a, a British uh, educator consultant named Ian Cunningham who works with what's called self-managed learning. And he actually works with a lot of big 
big businesses and organizations, um, but he also works in schools and communities, and he's created a, a set of a protocols and process that are really about asking real honest questions that help young people begin to track their learning. Um, having said that, I also think that there is a, that the premise of the question around um, the portfolios or the kind of tracking of learning, there are some good limiters in the sense that my own, my own feeling is that if I'm getting right amount of challenge and right amount of support, structure can serve me if it rightfully constrains me to point me to a deeper place. And so I think it's legitimate for schools, I think that to, to have moments in time or places in which they do put some constraints or they're looking for some consistent information. The problem is when it becomes so washed out of context or meaning that it becomes a kind of checklisty thing that doesn't mean anything anymore. No one actually remembers what it was for. And so to me it's about how do you um, create the, the school in Puerto Rico that we celebrate a lot, Nuestra Escuela, does a neat thing as a school structure where they take a pause every quarter, their whole school and students pause to talk about their pedagogy, what's working, what's not working, how do they change. And so they might own and embrace a certain set of structures for a period of time that they think has value, but there's a mechanism to constantly refresh. And to me, that's, that's a more useful paradigm to think about how to move with learning plans or portfolios is that, that interconnection of the kind of structures you might put in place and the ownership of the young people and community and teachers in the process. So in the interest of time, I'm going to jump a little bit forward here. But I'm curious, are there narratives around this that you tell that help people who haven't had any exposure experience to it? to understanding what Nuestra Escuela is doing by taking that pause every quarter. But what stories do you tell? Are there business stories, cultural stories that help give an understanding of the value of that? Yeah, there's a lot of them. Um, I'm pick a, I'll pick a couple. Um, so one story is actually about a Nuestra Escuela student that we tell. Um, her, her name is Viviana. And uh, she was attending the, the traditional school. And she was kicked out of the school for being a troublemaker and a problem. And, um, and really uh, had, had multiple interactions with the school in which they couldn't see anything right about her set of behaviors. And she came to the school in which her first experience was going on a retreat with other students in which part of that retreat was asking who are you and what's your dream and what is your goal for what you want to be um, and part of it was getting in contact with other people, was making choices about putting down drugs or alcohol, was her getting seen by other people, being hugged by other people including staff, being talked to about her own personal story and what was going on in her family and then her making an active choice to say I choose to put myself in this environment. That's followed by a biopsychosocial assessment by social workers that are not a sideshow, that aren't just chilling out in the counselor's office, but are directly engaged in the school and community, that help her think about what's happened in her life course to that point. She then gets to write her own strategic plan. The school talks about having 365 strategic plans because that's how many students they have instead of one organizational plan. And they see themselves in this kind of support role. And then she has small class sizes, 15 to 1, but she sets very clear goals. She wants to go to the university. Very rapidly, she becomes a very powerful student leader who is 
engaged in these constant reflections with the school, is helping think, help the school think about its own practice, um, and becomes a highly celebrated student, gets into the most prestigious university in Puerto Rico, and is a powerful young leader um, in Puerto Rico. And so um, that's, that's, you know, one concrete example of, of, of a student's journey. Um, and and uh, I have I have more fun ones to tell about a principal's journey or a mayor's journey or different different people's you know points in the process. Um, one fun one that I'll mention that is just kind of more broadly about what ideas impact is beginning to be is that just by having this conversation by trying to push out a different narrative, we were written by someone who is in a major U.S. city who's the head of their um, assessment and their job is basically to um, while they were a student of Linda Darling Hammond's, their job is to really be the person to have to make everybody do the standardized tests and report about No Child Left Behind and focusing on achievement gap stuff. And she wrote us very privately, and obviously I'm not going to share who she is or where she's from, talking about her own struggles with drug addiction and trying to navigate the pain of the things that she was doing that she doesn't believe in, and that what totally refreshes her is Ideas Facebook page, because it gives her a tremendous amount of hope of what's happening, and it gives her new courage to think about how to show up in her job differently. Um, and this is just simply by, by telling stories, by engaging with people in these kinds of ways. So tell me where I would find the link to that Facebook page here. Yeah, so on our, if you go to Ideas main page and you, um, you just go down, uh, oh, right there. Um, right underneath register, IDEC 2012 register, there's the Twitter symbol Facebook page. You can just click on the little Facebook icon. It'll take you straight to our page. Okay, so I'm thinking about my own neighbors and my friends. Mm -hmm. for whom the education narrative is very much about test scores and getting into the highest schools and what majors are going to produce the uh, highest dollar return for education. Uh, what stories are they going to respond to? I love the story you just told, resonates with me, but are there stories outside of the field of education that help bridge this understanding of rethinking education based on um, student engagement and more democratic pra practices. Are, are there, do you have stories outside of the education field you tell? Definitely. Um, the, the, to be really, to be really straight about it, often we, we ask people to tell us stories um, more than telling a particular story about um, because it is kind of complicated for people to put all those different pieces together. We'll often ask people to say, um, Sam Chaltain is a good friend of mine, and I know he's been on your show a couple of times, and, um, and we'll ask people to say, like, you know, what, when you think about your own powerful learning, you know, what is the story that, that connects you to that? Um, when you think about times where you've learned the most, what's happening in those environments? Um, the, the, the other kind of place that we tend to engage is really this concept about if we if we don't if we don't make a kind of direct connection between what's happening in our communities, um, then what's going to be replaced in our communities um, is schools that are highly privatized, potentially highly personalized, but disconnected from the community. And so, for examples of that, we can we'll tell stories about the Bureau of Indian Affairs. We'll tell stories about the Civil Rights Movement and what was happening in the Freedom Schools. Um, we'll talk with communities about the Great Depression and some of the informal learning centers. And it really depends on kind of who the audience is and the age that they're coming from. I think for younger people, it's much more talking about 
um, the type of learning that they're doing online already. Younger people already get all of this. They're kind of past the conversation in a way. Um, but we tend to we tend to want to point to um, you know what's happening in communities where families are disconnected. And so, um, if you want me to tell a specific one of those stories, I can. No, not necessarily at this point, but uh, valuable to hear that. Yeah. Um, and and interesting to me is the length of time it takes for for cultural narratives to change. You know, one of the intriguing pieces for me is trying to understand what happened in Finland. You know, how in a period of 30 years did they get cultural consensus around a pretty dramatic shift in their own education process? And I still don't feel like I really understand that. And I feel like in part, you know, what you're going to grapple with or are grappling with is figuring out how you help change those larger narratives. And that kind of brings us into the, the work that you're doing as an organization. Yeah, I mean, our larger thinking is that that we've we've come at it from a place that change is already ha change is emerging, change is already happening. There's a I mentioned earlier Yaakov Hecht, this Israeli educator. He's lately been saying this thing that it's kind of spicy, but I uh, I'll try to round it out a little bit. But he said that he's been telling people like, you know, go down. Uh, take a walk down the street, get out your camera, and take a picture of the modern school because in 20 years there's not going to be any more like that. Um, and I think that the question isn't about whether the school will be there or not, but it's going to be who's going who's to own the school, what values are going to inhabit it, what practices are going to become learning in the next 20 years. And we tend to look at it as things are emerging all over the country. There are amazing educators inside of public schools, outside of public schools, working with youth after schools, doing incredible things around engagement, around connection to place, around social justice, around power, around youth entrepreneurial leadership development around getting young people into direct apprenticeships that give them powerful skill sets. The problem is that too often that's middle and upper class white families. Um, too often um, that is um, disconnected from um, from actual school, and so it's this huge amount of extra effort instead of seeing as the kind of main kind of show. Um, but policy-wise, strategically. All of those groups tend to happen in isolation. They often point to different philosophies, different narratives. And so our view is that these changes are emerging. But if we don't network like-minded organizations with clear value sets that land on the side of young people and communities, that land on the side of social justice, that land on the side of the environment, then instead private companies, high-tech firms that don't have an interest in the community can take up a space around a, a very dynamic form of technological learning but doesn't actually hold the tension of all of our democratic values. And so our work is to say, how do we name the place, the, the, the bandwidth that we think we want to stay in? How do we identify what those practices look like in real time? How do we give voice to them without saying we were going to pick one particular type of school or one particular philosophy? But also, how do we kind of push off to the edges things that don't fit in this broad conceptualization of to have a healthy democratic society? We need to have learning that reflects that. How do we show that in a tangible time? How do we build definitions? How do we find it? How do we locate it? How do we support it? And so our work is really around spurring changes already emerging and building kind of we talk about as building courage, capacity, and connection as the work of idea. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna push back a little and play the devil's yeah. advocate. And, and in fact, uh, I'm wondering myself how much truth is in what I'm about to say. <laughs> but it feels to me that the sort of the uh, a deeper look at uh, human nature would be 
that these stories of thoughtfulness, complexity, process, engagement uh, typically are always the minority story. That, that in part our representative republic is an acknowledgment of the fact that um, you know we're not likely to have the majority of people thinking this deeply all the time about these subjects. So uh, it, it, is that something that you would recognize? Um, and is it a part of your strategy uh, just to kind of build as much as possible where there is openness to this, but also knowing that it's not likely to become the majority story? Uh, we tend to take the, I don't remember the name, um, the, I know it's in um, Jeff Godin's book, Purple Cow, but there's a, there's a, it's, he's actually borrowing it from someone else who came up with the idea, but this language around like innovator, early adopter, kind of mainstream, you've probably seen that kind of curve about how change happens, and we definitely think about it in the sense of um, we're trying to, to shine a spotlight on the places where we're, we're doing powerful things already. And we're trying to connect the folks that are already connected. We are not going to the, you know, the the the, the people in communities who are the, the most jaded, the most cynical, or have very defined views of learning and saying, you know, come play with us to build this kind of structural movement. Um, we are very, very clear about the fact that we want to play with the willing. We want to play with people who either are so far out in front, they're already there, are close to being there and need a little bit of support, or people who are open-minded but they need some tangible evidence. And our effort is to figure out how do we connect those dots and build that kind of capacity. And as we do, this narrative can emerge in a way that can begin to get the kind of attention that can get kind of thoughtful, open-minded folks to give it another look. But right now, all of these innovative groups and, and, and kind of early adopters recognize, I think, most of them, that there's tremendous disconnection amongst them and that they're not very strategic. There's not a gathering place in which people are very potently organized to think about how to change national policy, state policy, and a lot of the constraints that local communities deal with that aren't totally in their control. And our effort is to say, rather than pretending that we've got it figured out or rather than, than coming in and trying to mobilize everybody for our agenda, how do we set a broad set of values and parameters and then go get alongside those folks, help support the organizers already doing work in community but strengthen them, help them be more strategic and more collaborative, and that that can push us to a point of having strong enough connections that we can begin to be a dominant force in policy um, and in other areas in which uh, communities and young people, you know, need a more powerful advocate, you know, voice thing. And we're not going to do that by ourselves. We, we want to be a part of a kind of powerful network of organizations that are doing that kind of work. So I don't ever do this, but I really would like to go an extra 15 minutes. So I want to ask your permission now. That would be another 25 minutes. Would that be okay with you? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So what's intriguing to me about what you've just said is that we have a moment in history right now with social media where we are seeing institutional narratives being challenged by the participation that the web allows. So the opposite view here of, of the view I just stated is that this is in fact a sort of a brilliant moment to, to really help this to take place. And even though in the past there have existed schools that have acted like this but have just never gotten the visibility that this particular moment in time is going to allow for much more visibility and potentially much more change. Is that a part of your thinking as well? Yeah, we, um, the, one of the nicest compliments that we've gotten was from uh, one of the leaders of the Occupy Wall Street effort who, who said to one of our key organizers, 
you know, we're trying to talk about what needs to be changed while you guys are doing the work to point forward to the kinds of institutions we would need to, to realize the change. Like when we, when we are able to change some of these structural institutions, we will be looking to organizations and the networks that are inside of IDEA to help us know what do we actually do instead. Um, I'm not 100% on board with every aspect of an Occupy Wall Street platform, but that's an incredible compliment. And we definitely see ourselves as there's so much time and energy on the blogosphere, in Twitter, um, in, in reports and proposals and research that is highly reactive, very focused on pretty tired language and pretty tired ideas and not a lot, not enough time and energy thinking about what actually builds the structural capacity, what builds connections, what points the way forward. And so we are, I mean, the, the, at our core, are about the idea that um, there is a better way forward and it's going to look uh, different in different communities and different places. It's not one type of school, that it's about um, local context, local community, local relationships, but it is about some core things. Um, it is about access to, access to knowledge and power, about reading and writing. It is about youth engagement. It is about humility. It's about taking the time to um, engage with, with elders in the community and be multi-generational. Like it's about thinking about sustainability. Um, we could have highly personalized learning environments and yet still destroy the planet and have a tremendously oppressive society. And so how do we wrestle those tensions? But yeah, we are absolutely focused on the idea of being a place people can go to to say, here's where we want to travel and here's what it can look like and here's how we do it and here are all these amazing educators and schools that we can look to as teachers to us to help us move forward community by community, school by school, teacher by teacher. So uh, intriguingly again with these parallels, there's the student experience, the educator experience, the administrative experience, the community experience and, and if the parallel with all of these, at all of these levels is um, active involvement and engagement then um, in a sort of an intriguing way as an organization, you have to build into what you do uh, that same democratic process. So how, do you, how has your organizational structure or values or ideas reflected that same core belief in participation? Yeah, thanks very much for the question. Um, it's, it's interesting that you say it because in our, in our initial strategy document, which folks can find on the web, if they go to kind of about us and click on strategy, they can see our, our first effort to articulate where we actually speak to how as an organization we have to practice in order to, to be able to talk about any of this with any integrity. Um, so, um, so we have a, 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 I would describe it as a kind of playful structure of that balances uh, recognizing people's uh, skills and roles and, um, and, and meeting the world as it's at, the reality is that I'm the executive director, I make decisions about certain types of things, um, but a highly owned set of decisions owned by our board, owned by our staff, we have youth voice engaged at multiple levels of the organization, we have, um, we, with the way we have worked with organizers has been rather than going out and hiring our own community organizers, we've engaged with communities and we've asked people We've, we've set out a way to structurally support and grow strength in those organizations. Every person 
contact relationship, we have sent our working strategy document to and we've asked people three questions. What do you find compelling? What needs work? Who else should we be talking to? We track all that information. We're hyper transparent in terms of what we send out in terms of email and things. We're constantly engaging with different people for inputs. Um, as a staff, we do evaluations in a kind of 360 degree kind of evaluative format. Um, we make decisions by a kind of playful form of consensus where possible. Um, but we also recognize uh, uh, there's a, a fluidity to that that we don't get stuck. I mean, I, anybody could watch the, the Occupy Wall Street folks in Atlanta turn away civil rights leader John Lewis to realize that there are limitations about um, how we make decisions. And so we have a very playful leadership model. And I think at our core, we really stay guided in a set of values that are around sense of humor and humility. And I think it, we, could, we could have everybody on our staff and I think everyone would reflect back and say that they're doing the things they're best at. There's a kind of, we use a lot of Dan Pink kind of results oriented work environment, kind of an internal structure. Um, and that we're, we're, you know, highly relational, highly engaged. We understand each other, but we're also able to move playfully. We're not, we're not stuck sitting around having a vote on everything. Um, and I think that's, that's important as well. So there's so many interesting parallels for me to the business world and sort of the total quality movement and a lot of the uh, activities that I remember living through in the 80s and 90s. And, and one of the interesting pieces of that was even sometimes when the activities produced a better outcome, uh, the market sometimes didn't support that. Um, and <laughs> if, you, if you look at uh, organizations that have the kind of high ideals that you have, Sometimes they have a hard time getting funding. Yeah. So how has that been for you? And um, are you experiencing the same thing? Or are you doing okay? Um, I mean, I, I I'll get your feedback. You can tell me how we're doing. Um, <laughs> the, the um, I mean, we got started off of a uh, um the Bain Paul Foundation, the Small Family Foundation in New York. Um that really tries to look at kind of promising ideas that's deeply committed to kind of the similar ideas. They gave us kind of seed funding for a planning grant and a, and a first year of behind the scenes work that was really led by Malia and Dana. Um, and then we got another small foundation in Vermont, um, the New Visions Foundation, not to be confused with the New Visions Foundation in New York, to give us some money. Um, and you know we began to build the beginnings of some some organizational infrastructure. Um, we've done a lot right um, with each of those funders. Um, they have progressively grown, and they're giving to the point that you know now they're we're talking about a couple hundred thousand dollars between them, um, and they feel very good about the progress that we've made. But they are also in funding us for the idea that we can build our own earned revenue, um, that we won't be dependent on foundation funding, that we can build our own individual donor base, and that honestly we can get one of the other kind of bigger education foundations to kind of to kind of see us as viable or bias or some constellation of community foundations. Um, we had a, a matching challenge uh, that, that has recently been extended, but we had a matching challenge that was the deadline was September 30th to get $150,000 in gifts and matches and pledges, and we, we didn't meet it. We raised about $83,000, um, but we fell short. That was hard because we had done a lot of, of um, networking with large education foundations, um, some of whom just can't, can't get us, you know, but, but a couple that really seemed to get us, and, and we had in-person meetings, and I really think that they do, but there's this, you know, in the, in the, in the Ed Foundation world, my learning uh, being relatively new to the kind of national education foundation scene is that there's just um, 
people have a lot of committed funds already. The economic environment is not good. Folks tend to want and have things that they know ahead of time are going to work before they fund them, which means that the reality is by the time we don't need funding anymore, we'll likely get a bunch of it. Um, and so that's been a little bit of challenging. At times, it's been outright disappointing um, to, to see the work we're doing and the potential impact and real impact we're having and, and wish that people would see us as a, as a more robust thing to fund. But we also knew going in from talking with folks that it was going to be hard won and it was going to take real engagement with communities. I think we've begun to found more success with local communities that where we're actually having tangible impact. Um, I'm excited about a couple of larger foundations more recently kind of coming out of the social emotional frame that seem to really see the value of our work, are excited about our methodology, um, and so we're, we're optimistic. Um, we just got this matching challenge extended, um, and so we have until um, the goal is January 31st to raise the, the rest of the amount, which is another $67,000, and so you know, we're going to be making appeals to local foundations and national foundations and individuals, and Steve, you're welcome to give us you know, some, <laughs> some, some money. Um, but we're we're not we're not out of the woods. We're we have a lot more we could accomplish, um, and that we're ready for to do as an organization than we can do. But we're careful about not overpromising things we can't deliver on. And so, um, it's been an interesting 18 months really since we've begun publicly operating, and we're learning a tremendous amount about what's powerful messages. What, what really is creating impact um, and how to navigate some of the insides of that, of those things. And that, you know, it would be nice if it was a little bit easier, but I, I also wouldn't say we're doing terrible. We're, we're definitely growing as an organization and we're finding a lot of success in earned revenue income projects. And so I don't know, what's your, what's your take on how we're doing? I will give you half of the money I make during the interview series for this, which is unfortunately a big fat zero. And I found this, this uh, I'm, sort of, I'm sort of intrigued by this because I think that there is a degree to which um, this is difficult terrain. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, uh, I'm, I'm interested in kind of drilling down a little bit to determine uh, uh, is there actual opposition? Can we say that there's an, there's an, in, there's, there's intentional um, disinterest, or is it just that people don't understand? And, and unfortunately, I almost kind of feel a little bit like um, that this may, this is again this deep message, which ends up being. Um, not the majority message, and it would make it very hard to get the kind of traditional funding which we're seeing organizations all over the place in education get. I mean, I'm you know every time I turn around, somebody's getting huge amounts of money for things that I don't actually feel very interested in. Yeah. Um, there's a quote on your website, I think, um, and it's about speaking truth to power, and I've always associated that with Chomsky. But I've wondered about you know, sort of the actual kind of practical power issues. And do you think that there are degrees to which um, some of that resistance comes from, um, I'm not going to say in, uh, malevolent design, but the fact that this is disruptive and it disrupts all kinds, I mean, disrupts decades for a lot of people of work and value they've created in themselves. And it may not even be conscious, but that it's so disruptive that it may be hard for them to actually feel like they want to support it. Um, it's a big set of questions. Um, the 
So first of all, like I, I don't know that there's any foundation yet that we've talked to that's kind of like actively, willfully, you know. Um, I, there are certainly a couple of foundations that we haven't engaged um, that that you know might might take that view. But there's there's no one interrupting kind of our process. I, I'd actually take it as a as a good sign of success. Um, if folks start taking a few shots, uh, because it would mean that we'd gained enough traction that, that folks were. Um, I think that structurally, from a kind of like social view, there's bound to be some pushback because there's a saying in kind of the change world that uh, you know it's not change that's hard; it's the transition that's difficult. Um, and um, you know what we're calling for and the things that we're supporting are um, things that. There's a lot of money wrapped up in education. There's a lot of money in a kind of certain mode of delivery. Um, the the there's a lot of just kind of like a paradigm that is if folks have already kind of gotten it or kind of seen a view of thinking about student engagement and community ownership, then they're very fast to like us and want to kind of play with us. But if folks are kind of cut up in a in a kind of paradigm that doesn't doesn't see that lens, um, then it's almost like they just it's, there's kind of less a like resistance and more of a kind of like well I don't quite get it you know can you explain it and then it's on us really I think to break through that I mean I take it as a, a challenge for us I, I believe that um, we need to think about foundations because of the outsized role that foundations play in education in local communities and national communities um, we have begun to think about them as just another set of communities that has to be organized. And that in the same way that we're trying to find the best stories for communities, we have to see them as potential allies. Who are the So what we're looking for, who are the foundations that are those early adopters? Who are the foundations that want to play at a leading edge? How do we locate those folks? How do we make sure they have values that are aligned with young people and communities and around these social justice things? And how do we kind of build a relationship with them and that the promises that will get to a point where we can get funding that can help support us to build out capacity to tell our strategies to eventually get to a point in which we're only using foundation funds to spur new initiatives and that we're using individual donors and earned revenue um, because we want to be able to retain uh, independence and an ability to stand alongside communities and young people and not have a foundation change its mind, take away 50% of the funding, and then be devastated, which is it's not hard uh, for folks who pay attention on the kind of inside education world to look at a litany of schools and networks and effort that was raised. I think that I, I don't I don't think Gates is a totally bad actor, although I know that for many folks they think that's true. Um, I think there are some bad actors at foundations. I think Gates tends to be a little bit more, and I give them credit for some self-effacing reporting of their own kind of grantees upset, but I think I tend to think of them more as kind of like a four-year-old with like billions of dollars kind of stomping around a room and if someone gave you and I $20 billion and told us that we had to get it out the door in six weeks, no matter how well-intentioned we may be, we're going to make a mess just out of like sheer ripple. Um, and I think that they just, they made a tremendous mess um, and, and I think it's hard to recover from that. But I also think that they're not going away and they have a tremendous amount of money and so if you have a way to convince them to be able to see things differently, um, but I also think you want to be really careful because you don't want to recreate that same cycle over again where you get millions and millions of dollars and then they, you know, change their mind again and then you, you're leaving communities. Communities are tired, you know, communities, we had a, a, young, a young woman, African American woman tell us at a conference this summer, you don't have to convince communities to care. You have to convince them to care again. Um, they're, Communities are exhausted. 
there there's so many nonprofits, so many programs, so many people coming to their door that they have, and I imagine that's true for teachers, not other folks. That people want to know, like, are you going to be, are you real? Are you just another nonprofit that sounds good, that's got good words, but is actually going to leave us hanging when the money changes? And so our work is to say, how do we, you know, if it's going to take us a little bit more time, but how do we do it right? How do we, how do we keep promises to communities? How do we pay attention to them? So that's thinking overall. I know I'm digging deep here, and I'm appreciative of the fact that you're answering the questions. Um, are there any folks doing work in education that you just vehemently disagree with? Oh, man. Uh, vehemently is such a strong word for such an optimist who likes people as much as I do. Um, okay, so we can, know, let's soften yeah, that a little. <laughs> I mean, you know, who do you look um, at and think, oh, darn? <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot that I look at as kind of big missed opportunities, right? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stuff to look at and go, man, that's like so close and yet it's so far, you know, it's so far away. I mean, I think that, you know, some of the tenor of um, Michelle Rhee's kind of tone um, is is way off base. Um, I think that, that um, the the broad sense of like, um, Governor Walker's effort to kind of crush unions and some of the focus on unions as kind of the sole problem rather than engaging with unions as kind of trans potentially transformative actors is, is, the, is a wrong approach. Um, but I kind of, you know, I can also get alongside some of the frustration of why folks get to those places. Um, you know, I think that um, if anybody's watched the Stanford Children, you know, thing with with Jonah Edelman making this kind of terrible series of really arrogant remarks, looks like what what is really playing the inside game very hard, very strategically, and at some point in its deep roots, really out of a place that comes out of a kind of like social justice. I mean, Stanford Children got started out of 30,000 people marching for poverty and kids, and his you know mom is Marion Wright Edelman, and yet you can kind of lose a distance. Um, and so we try to take lessons from all of that. I'm, I'm actually not that interested in vilifying folks. Um, it, it's going to take a lot of us finding ways to work together. Um, and so I tend not to get in the kind of hate category too quickly because I think we have to all keep learning lessons. And so my hope tends to be that folks can slow down enough to think about what they're talking about and to understand what's happening in communities more clearly. Um, I'm a big fan of Michelle Fine, an academic who talks about schools as sites of possibility, sites of struggle, and sites of exploitation. And I think that there are um, companies and organizations that are preying on families and are making money off of education as an enterprise that don't hold the public good as their orientation. And I think that the general public deserves to get a lens and get some ownership of that. And I'm not always sure that they, I think they think that they're being protected by um, government actors or policy actors. I'm not sure that's always the case, similar to kind of the banking industry, but it's far more invisible. Um, and so I think that there are a lot of problems. Um, I'm not sure there's total villains. I think that, you know, most folks think that they're doing the right thing, but it's hard to, I think it's hard to sort out those guys. So I know I kind of bypassed, you complimented me for asking the questions and then I kind of bailed out on that one, but hopefully that was a useful answer at some level. I think it was, and I think you're going to be able to go to sleep tonight not feeling, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, feeling you answered that thoughtfully and yet still kind of 
you know, explored it a little. Um, and and, and yeah, it, it, you know, we, we don't have the time to go into this, but um, you know, somebody put in there, you know, what about Khan Academy? Uh, what about KIPP schools? You know, is there a school, sort of one word answer here, is there a school where if you found your child in that school, you, you would actually take them out of school? So I, I'll, the KIPP one is the one I'll take. Um, the thing about KIPP schools, and it's more than one word, but it's really important, I think. Um, KIPP schools are well-intentioned in the idea of giving young people access to get a college education. The problem is the method of getting them there creates, a, one, it's built on a slightly, I think, complicated view of young people, but it also is about putting them on, an, uh, if they were already on a kind of very regulated programmatic bus, it's putting them like in boot camp and giving them every possible thing that they need, which is really useful to get to entry into college, but as their statistics would reveal, and as I think is really the litmus test of whether it's a useful education is, it actually hasn't helped them manage their own learning, and it hasn't built some of the skill sets that help you know what to do when you're not being told what to do. And so I actually think the best uh, equation of KIPP schools, as spicy as it is, is much more closely like the Bureau of Indian Affairs. I fear greatly that people with really good intentions and amazing teachers who care very much about kids and communities of color are uh, out of good intentions um, recreating conditions that kind of assimilate young people rather than liberate them. Um, I think that I'd be open to talk with anybody from a KIPP school about that, but I think we need to have a much deeper, more nuanced conversation about KIPP schools um, if they're going to be getting hundreds of millions of dollars of federal money about what the purpose of school is. And so there, there's, my, there's the one I would jump out of. I'm not even going to ask how you feel about the decision this week to turn over the teach.gov <laughs> website to Microsoft, because neither of us want to bring that one up. <laughs> you have to extend us more time to go there. <laughs> no, 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 we're not going to do it. Okay, so um, uh, education tours, workshops, I put up the conference website. Um, how are those going? All good. The tours have been uh, the tours have been powerful learning experiences. They've helped us build relationships with great educators, and we've sold. I think the the three that we've done, we've sold out. Um, the um, the conference is is off to great start. Some amazing speakers. Um, the kind of full schedule and things will be out um, in a couple of weeks um, of all the kind of keynote folks. But it's a real um, in, sited in Puerto Rico in Caguas. It's a coming together of international folks, and it's really pulling together the human rights community, the academic community, um, people who are doing all kinds of innovative school things internationally, um, and it's also bringing public school people together, and it's bringing teacher There's a teacher's union that has, is endorsing it in Puerto Rico, and so um, it's going to matter a tremendous amount to Puerto Rico, um, and I think it matters a tremendous amount to the world. I, I would really encourage anybody who's, who's listening to, to take a serious look at showing up. I think it's a powerful movement-building type of conference that has, has real potential that, to, you know, a lot of conferences, you wonder if they make an impact. This one, I think, has the potential to do something significant. Okay, again, taking notes and couldn't find that talk button. Um, okay, uh, you know, there's a lot we're not getting to, but we have one minute left. So, um, uh, books that we should think about reading, or people that I should think about interviewing. Kind of off the top of your head, I've made you know I've made a list of a few here as you've mentioned them uh, as we went along. But but who should we really be paying attention to right now? 
Uh, Grace Lee Boggs' most recent book called The Next American Revolution, Sustainable Activism for the 21st Century, is a 92-year-old Asian-American woman who was with Malcolm X and Dr. King and has been working with young people in urban Detroit. It's a really powerful book, um, and she's got an amazing story to tell. Definitely should be paying attention to her. Um, I think that if people have lost track of their books, uh, John Goodlad's a good person that you can't interview, but a good thing to be reading. Um, Seth Godin, uh, in Lynchpin in particular, is a book that makes the um, the case about as plain and honest and not an education ease as any book going, um, and thinking about how we need to think about the nature of work and learning differently. Um, I think that you, it would be great for you to have um, Edward D.C. or someone from the um, uh, uh, the um, the um, just lost the name of the theory. The um, self uh, man, what I can't think of it. Um, anyway, self self motivation, uh, self directed learning. It's around belongingness, auto uh, belongingness, autonomy, and competency. Um, and I think that uh, and that he's a powerful speaker, author, writer um, that I think has a lot to teach us about the nature of learning going forward. Um, I'm the thing that I'm really digging right now, which is just a really wonky book, um, is called Capacity Development and Practice, and it's edited by a guy named Jan Ubels, who's a European who who has a magazine called Capacity.org. But I think if you replace the concepts of thinking about economic and capacity development and thinking about how to change large-scale um, globalization, deforestation, economic things, and you replace it with education, it's a real powerful, um, it's a powerful read with a lot of really practical advice. Um, and then I think the last one I'll mention is Bob Peterson, who has re recently been elected the leader of the Milwaukee Public Schools, um, has written a book that's a little, uh, it's a little older. I, mean, I think he edited it, but it's called Transforming Teacher Unions. Um, and I think that that's also a powerful uh, read for people to think more clearly about what's happening in unions and what their role is in education. Okay. We're a minute over time. Uh, no, no, no. This is my fault. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm clapping for you. Our very large audience here is <laughs> surely appreciative of your being on the show. Per personally, of uh, enormous interest to me, and I'm, I'm really delighted that you were willing to take the time, and, uh, and I thank you for that. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. Okay, coming up on the future of education, we are rescheduling Alan Blankstein, but Tasha Bergson, um, Michelson will come on uh, from Google on the first, and then Malia, who got some mention tonight, is going to come on and talk to us as well and maybe tell some of these same stories or extend some of the conversation. Um, it is a little bit later for you, Scott, in Puerto Rico, so thank you for being willing to take the extra time. Thanks, everybody, for coming tonight. Uh, really appreciate uh, your participation. Bye now. Yeah.